Hello, people. Why did I say it like that? This is episode 124 of Just Because the Human Experience podcast. This is Michael Lobo. I need a drink. This episode features my guest, Aaron Kong. They were fantastic to talk to. It's it's really nice being able to talk to someone who's doing um, work in the community. And it was really great hearing Aaron's uh, a journey to figuring themselves out. And I, I'm 107 years old and I still need to figure out a lot about myself. So it was, it was really fascinating and uh, quite frankly inspiring. I, I say it in the episode, but to hear someone take the world and it, and it can be overwhelming and, and very daunting at times, but to hear them talk about it in a way that, um, you know, it, it can be manageable. Aaron is one of the founders for uh, Desert Diwata. Uh, you can find more information at desertdiwata.com. That's uh, D-I-W-A-T-A. And then you can also find Aaron on their Instagram at Aaron. That's E-R-I-N dot Kong, K-O-N-G. I, I'm always thankful and appreciative when, when someone takes the time to be on the, the podcast and talk to my goofy self. So a uh, big thank you to them. And thank you to you for listening. Please have lots of cookies. Treat yourself. How's it going? Hi, good. How are you? I am okay. I'm doing all right. I always feel a little flustered when I'm when I'm about to do it, but once we get in it, I get lost in the conversation. So I'll be cool. But it's always the right before thing that I always feel weird about. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. I got my coffee. I'm like energized. I'm good to go. Uh, oh, cool. The way I, I found, like I found you, but the way I kind of came across your on Instagram was, you know, I, I really wanted to use the the podcast and the platform to talk to people in the community and people who I assume are passionate about what they do, right? And, and, and love what they do. But also it's great when it's artists, but also they have maybe a cause they're they're pushing for. Maybe they're they're using it for something outside of themselves and bigger than themselves. And so, you know, when I was looking at um, desert, is it pronounced Diwata. Uh, Diwata. Uh-huh. Diwata. And I, and I loved it. So then I was going through your, your, your website. And so I thought, oh my God, I have to talk to this person. And so just to sort of start, I guess, like where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in the Bay Area in California. Okay. Um, and then I moved to Arizona, like Chandler Gilbert in 2001 when I was like four. Um, and then I kind of just grew up in the East Valley and then went to school at ASU and now I'm living in Phoenix. Yes, but my family is originally from Korea. My paternal grandparents are from Busan, like the coastal part. And then my 
Maternal grandma is from Pyongyang in the north and then came to the south during the war. And then my maternal grandfather is from Gwangju on the east. And the reason I say that too is because like, I think a lot of people tend to um, make Korea like a monolith. You know, mm. like you're Korean, you're Korean, but all the places are so different regionally and culturally and even like in their dialect. So I try to be like very specific. <laughs> no, no. <thank laughs> Where my family's that. from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's it's a weird thing people do um, when they so I'm, I'm Filipino. So then they'll they just assume I must know all the Asian stuff. And I go, <laughs> no, you know, it's like there's different cultures and it's different ways of people and it's it's not just one thing that you could just go oh, okay you so you, you know that you do you mm. know that thing do you know that way of life and I go it's it's, it's more than that did you experience uh because my parents came from the Philippines here a big sort of cultural struggle with growing up American and what what maybe they do back home because there, there'd be a lot of fights with me and my parents like well I want to do it the American kids are doing it mom and dad and so they go, well, that's that's not how they grew up. So then it's a little bit different from them. Was there any struggle with that? Mm, that's a really good question. I think that for me, both of my parents came when they were kids. Mm. So they're like the 1.5 generation. So I think maybe that specific struggle is more specific to their relationship with their parents. Um, but for me, my parents very much were and are still like firm believers in the American dream in being American. You know, they're like, oh, you're an American kid. You're this and that. Like we still had like Korean things growing up, but they're very adamant about me like assimilating and fitting in, you know, their own projections and insecurities from their childhood. But I think for me, like there was not as much struggle there but the struggle for me is like reconnecting with my Korean heritage Mm. because as a kid, like I grew up speaking English with my parents. Um, I grew up away from other Korean family. We didn't have a Korean community in Arizona because we weren't part of the Korean Presbyterian church here. So for me, it was sort of like trying to reconnect with Korean culture and, you know, realizing and understanding at an early age that no matter how badly my parents want me to be American, right? That's not what I am perceived as here. Mm. Um, and so it was more like coming to terms with that. And with with your writing uh, Korean morning rituals and, and just your poetry in general, how did you even land on writing as a, as a form of expression? I think... For me, writing is something that I've always done from a very young age. That's how I found myself. And I think it's actually sort of from my mom's side of the family. They're like all artists. They're all creators. My grandmother actually was like a poet. Like she was a writer. Um, My aunt was really into writing. I remember being young and going through like her binders of stuff she had just written. So I think for me, it was something that was very accessible to me. And like, it's something you can do by yourself. And it's I think for me also how I processed my feelings because I'm not someone who typically like expresses their feelings just like by talking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I was younger, it was like so bad. Like I just didn't want to open up to people, but I was like, well, I still have all these feelings. So it was a lot of working through that as a child. And then as a teenager with all the angst and you're like, I have so many feelings and crushes and I need to write about them. <laughs> yeah. It was actually, I think probably college time when I started writing a lot of the poems that are in Korean morning rituals but sort of when I began to look beyond me and like my personal feelings and see how they worked in like a larger ancestral context larger like family 
history, just sort of like rooting it in the material world, you know? But yeah, and poetry just worked for that, I think. It's definitely one thing. And so I, I write as well. I wish mm-hmm. I, I, I need to make more time to write, right? That's on, that's on me. The, there's definitely a difference between writing it and then maybe even letting someone read it. I feel, I don't know how you feel, like a huge difference of like performing it, of, of reading it to a crowd, which is, which is strange when, you know, I, I've done theater, but that, that's someone else's words. And, you know, there's the whole thing about putting yourself in the character, but a poem is from, from you. Like it's, mm. it's you personally. Uh, what is your experience with that? reading in front of people. I think it's really interesting that you come from theater because I also come from theater. Oh, Um, awesome. Yeah, I studied musical theater was like my major in college. Um, So that's my background. But like you said, like performing your actual own words in in front of someone else is a very vulnerable experience. I think still for me in my early stages of performance for poetry, I started in slam. And slam poetry is all about it's a performance. It's, yeah. it requires vulnerability, but it's a persona. And I think so that's definitely what I was doing in the beginning. So like, there's a poem that I used to do and it's in the book. It's called the deconstruction of the ABG. Do you know what an ABG is? No. What is it's, that? Um, it's an Asian baby girl. So it's like a stereotype. Okay. It's actually really interesting because it actually came out of specifically like Asian Americans who were like kids of immigrants who would grow up in like lower income areas. And so that's the stereotype that was associated. And now it's kind of morphed into this weird thing where now it's about the Asian girls with like long hair and the acrylics who go to raves and stuff like that. I grew up with a lot of ABGs. And so that would be the character that I would perform for that poem because I was like, these are all my friends. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that didn't require as much vulnerability. And I think it wasn't until the book was published and I was doing poems that actually were just me and they didn't require persona. And that was very interesting because in Arizona, as you know, if you perform poems, you're doing them to predominantly white audiences or predominantly at least not Asian audiences. Mm -hmm. It honestly felt like a lot of pressure to me because I was like, oh, there's no other Korean person in this room there's not even an Asian person in this room right Right. so what I say has a lot of weight for how these people will view certain things or you know like what stereotypes will come into play things like that so I have to be very very intentional and that used to freak me out I would feel very you know like it's not a big deal like you're reading poems in like an open mic or in front of a room or at a performance but just knowing that like man some of these people have never like had a relationship or like any form of community with an Asian person before and you're their first experience hearing it. And it's just such a bizarre, but also like very humbling sort of. Yeah. I kind of relate to that in that there's sort of a burden there of like, I, I have to represent all the people now for this, for this, these few minutes since you, you've never met one of me, I guess. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a weird thing to do. How did you, I love, okay, we have to get into theater now. Uh, <laughs> how did you get introduced to that? Because I didn't, like all through high school, people kept bugging me to join drama, join drama, because I was silly, I guess. So I finally did it my senior year, which I feel is late. I majored in it in at ASU uh, and Phoenix College. And so how did you get into it? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember, I think, 
So my mom's a musician. That's her main sort of work. Um, so I always grew up like singing at church or doing like their little, the little church acting pageants and things like that, you know. And I did theater in high school. I did not do a lot of theater in high school, but I did some. Oh, you know what it was? I did a, <laughs> so embarrassing. I did this really racist opera called the Mikado. It's like a yellow face opera, but oh, no. Chandler Gilbert Community College is doing it. And I was 13. I didn't have any, you know, like racial analysis. I didn't know this was weird and, you know, horrible to Asian people. But I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> My parents were like, okay, I guess. So I performed in the Mikado at CGCC. This was like 10 years ago now. And then a professor at ASU, David Britton, saw me in that performance and said, when you graduate high school, because I wasn't in high school yet, I was about to start, but he said, you know, when you were in high school, come audition for the program at ASU. And I was like, wow. okay, <laughs> sure. So then I did because I was like, well, this professor wants me to do it, so I'll do it. And then I applied to other colleges besides ASU that were like, but I applied for English and ASU was the only one I applied to for musical theater. And I didn't get into any other college besides ASU. <laughs> so nice. I was like, okay, you know, if I hate musical theater, I'll just never do it again. I'll just change my major, you know? But no, I ended up loving it. And I stuck with it for all four years. Um, and I was working in it until the pandemic, actually. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like that's very much my personality. Like, just try something. And when you don't love it anymore, if you don't like doing it, just stop doing it and change to something else yeah but yeah that's kind of the roundabout way that I yeah. found it. yeah and were your parents supportive of that because there, there was a lot of pushback from mine in that they didn't get it and it's I don't know if you're like if you're familiar with Joe Coy but he makes the joke that all Filipinos are nurses uh mm-hmm. and my mom was a nurse my sister's a nurse um even even when I because I majored in theater and psychology she didn't understand psychology. She goes, what, why, what, what are you doing? It sounds like your parents were pretty supportive of, of you doing musical theater. Uh, mm. Would that be fair to say? I think so. I think um, something that my dad told me that really stuck with me is that, you know, he grew up like 1.5 gen. He grew up very poor. And so he told me that like, he grew up poor, so he wasn't allowed to have dreams. Mm. Right. But for me, I was allowed to have dreams. So like, he really wanted that for me, like me to be able to pursue what I wanted. He still wanted me to have a backup plan, you know, cause yeah. obviously he's worried, but he was very supportive. My mom was supportive, but at first she was very worried because she was talked out of pursuing music in college mm. um, by her family. And her family was like, why would you, you know, pursue piano, you should be pursuing social work. So she ended up pursuing social work. So when I told her I was doing musical theater at first, she was like, what, why? Cause you know, that's what she had been told. But then as time went on, she was like, no, it's okay. She worked through her own little thing and she became very supportive. When you were talking about sort of your, you're trying to get in touch with, I'm like growing up American, but trying to stay more to your cultural roots I was usually the only Filipino kid in the school and it wasn't until I got to ASU that I, there was more Filipino people. I mean, it's, it's pretty multicultural, right? It's a pretty, really big campus. So there was a lot of different people there. And I'm still on this journey of trying to figure out my culture in that way. What, what has the journey been looking like for you in the past few years? 
So in high school, where I was living, there were a lot of kids of Asian immigrants who were working in tech because like Intel moved out to Chandler, like microchips in Chandler. So um, I was friends with a lot of Asian kids, like mostly Asian kids in high school. Um, not so much Korean people because I did not fit into their Korean Presbyterian church group. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a lot of them... You know, we're like, oh, Aaron doesn't like, I don't know, just calling me names and stuff like very high school thing. And then when I got to college, besides the people I lived with, because um, my roommate was Taiwanese and then my two other roommates were South Indian, but most of my friends were white. The musical theater program was basically all white. So suddenly all my friends went from mostly, you know, Pan-Asian kids to white kids. And I don't think I like realized how disconnected I was from everything until in my musical theater program, there was this whole thing where a reviewer left a racist review about me. Um, <gasps> he, he called me like an exotic dragon lady in a review. Oh, hell and no. I was, yeah, no, it was not cute. Um, and like, you understand why that's bad. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know? that's but, terrible. Yeah, um, he didn't understand why I was bad. A lot of the kids I went to school with didn't realize why I was bad. Like it was very split. People were like, why is Aaron upset? And then other people were like, no, Aaron has a right to be upset. And I was 19. I was the only, mm -hmm. um, specifically like, I think I was the only Asian kid in the program at the time. I think maybe the year after there was more, but you know, I didn't know how to deal with that. That's when I kind of looked at the majority of the people who I had been surrounding myself with. And I was like, man, there are, there used to be only Asian kids. There's no more Asian kids. I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. So I joined an Asian sorority that people I knew from high school were in um, because I was like, okay, well, this is where I'll find Asian, you know, Asian people. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and then that was very, I was also the only Korean person in there, but it was like mostly like Vietnamese and like Filipinx and like other people in there. So that was cool. And that really helped me really understand more what it was like to be quote unquote Asian American, just because I feel like because it's college, like you're with a more diverse group of people, whether that's like across ethnic groups, but also across like class, right? Um, versus like where I grew up in high school. Um, and that was just really affirming to me because then I, I didn't feel like I had to, had to only hang out with the musical theater people or people in my dorm. Like there was a community I could go to where I didn't have to explain certain things, right? right. Um, because like so much energy just goes towards explaining ourselves. I believe it was Toni Morrison who said like, there's no point in explaining ourselves and it's a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so that was a horrible paraphrase, but. <laughs> It was just nice to, you know, eat food you like to eat with your friends. Like I remember in the musical theater program, like racist shit would just happen all the time. People would ask me what the different, and they're like microaggressions, but also like bigger things from like faculty, right? Um, oh, yeah. I'm not sure what your experience was like yeah. <laughs> yeah. studying theater, but you know. But yeah, I remember even my freshman year, my class was really small. It was just me and like three other girls in my graduating class but two of them were white and I remember go, like hanging out with them getting to know them and they were like what's the difference between Asia and Korea and I was like <laughs> no you know and I just remember being there like no. what do you mean what do you mean <laughs> you know but yeah so after the sorority I got basically um connected more with my Korean culture and like learned and joined um 
the Asian American Studies program at ASU, which really was sort of the thing that helped me reconnect because then you learn about imperialism and like mm-hmm. why your family is Christian, you know, um, and just sort of all these things. And you learn about it in like, again, like a very rooted way. It's not just about you and your personal feelings anymore. It's like, oh, it's about war and about power and like colonialism. So that was really great. I met a lot of really, really good friends in that program, but I'm sorry. I like also realized that I'm like giving, well, I guess he asked, but like the no. whole story, it's just the whole thing. You know what I mean? No, I want the whole thing. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> we have seven hours. That's how long oh, this is going to be. Beautiful. Perfect. I love that. Thank God for the coffee. Um, yes. <laughs> and then after that, I joined a community of Korean like leftists on Twitter And that was like what kind of got me out of the Asian American into the you are a Korean person, very specifically. Mm -hmm. And I connected with people who study indigenous Korean religions. Um, So like pre-colonial religions and like connected with people who studied shamanism and like different languages and diaspora outside of the United States, like Japanese or like Korean Zainichi. So Korean diaspora in Japan with actual Korean Koreans who always like I just had a lot of work to do around like motherland Koreans because I felt judged even though they weren't judging me you know like you just yeah, feel yeah. insecure and they're doing nothing <laughs> they're just like existing and you're like oh my god I'm not being Korean enough right now it's just you in your own head yeah yep mm-hmm. um but yeah and so that's been really really great and then we started a a study group for Korean diaspora called CLASS, which is like the Korean League of Anti-Imperialist Socialist Studies. And it was just like a bunch of Korean people that got together and we would like read texts about Korean history and then like talk about it and the implications of it. And that was really, really cool. And yeah. I'm uh, jealous on 50,000 levels. Um, <laughs> I just watched Joe Koi over and over again. Um, but... Did your sorority start with the letter D? Oh, yes. No, it started. So that was A5G. Um, it wasn't Delta Chi Lambda. Okay. That's what I was going to yes. uh, Because I was, I mean, I still am. I'm in a fraternity and we would, I mean, obviously you have socials, right? As, as a, as mm-hmm. organization. So we, uh, A5G, right? Is, was, I graduated a hundred years ago. So that was that for me. Um, but what I, I loved about, oh my God, I forgot how to pronounce it again. Desert. Desert Diwata. Mm-hmm. Diwata, yes, Diwata. Okay, um, so I was like reading through it, and and I've noticed in the past um, few years, there's there's really a a, um, a surgeons surgeons is that a word uh, of people, I guess being woke, right? People understanding the the colonial uh, aspects or of what where things came from, um, and and understanding the history of stuff. And, and when going through the website, you know, there's a lot of the language there of, you know, demilitarization of colonized people and other colonized people. So how did you get there? Right. Because mm. we're, as kids, we're kind of just told to what to believe. And maybe if we say why adults, I, at least in my experience, they go, well, just cause I said, that's just, that's just what it is. And mm. I'm, I'm a pre-K teacher, and so I want to make sure I, I teach my kids how to how to question stuff, how to mm. question um, why things are like Valentine's Day or or Christmas. Uh, just 
the history of stuff as much as I can because they're they're four and five, so uh, the <laughs> comprehension's a little. And sometimes I get a little ahead of myself, um, but I definitely try to teach them other things that they might not learn in traditional school. So how was that? I mean, you touched on it a little bit by talking about the the groups you joined and and the studies you were going through. But can you share a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um how I got there, how we got there. It was really interesting because so um, I was one of the co-founders of Desert Diwata with one of my um, best friends. Her name is Danielle Gannon. Um, and she's, oh God. Okay. She's Ilocano, Ilongo, and Bicolano. Oh, cool. um, and so we were like, you know, we really want a pan-Asian community for creatives in Arizona. And that's kind of where we started. Um, And then as we sort of educated ourselves just by reading, like it was honestly just by reading books because we had the context. We were like, okay, we understand um, Asian American culture and sort of, you know, like you think of in the 60s and the 70s where like Asian American coalitions were really strong. That's when they created the term Asian American instead of like the slurs that they had been called until that point. Um, So we had that context, but then, you know, reading books specifically written by other colonized people Mm. So like, not just like the textbooks, like, you know, you open the textbook in like high school and it's like one paragraph about the Korean war, one paragraph about the Philippines. Uh Um, But then actually reading entire books, like written by other Korean people. Like I remember um, haunting the Korean diaspora by Grace M. Cho was like life-changing because it really talks specifically about war brides in Korea and about women in Korea and how the war affected them. And like, gave you the stats like oh did you know like one-fifth of the Korean population died during the war and I was like excuse me (laughs) you know so after you yeah and like they don't tell you that they just tell you oh um the United States saved South Korea from North Korea from the evil communists right and it's not like well did you know the United States also destroyed um 80 percent of North Korea's infrastructure (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so I feel like after you read that, you can't go back. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was very like radicalizing. And I think, you know, Danielle having her knowledge about the Philippines and then me having my knowledge about Korea. And then as our base um, grew and as we connected with more people and expanded our team, like seeing everyone discover those things about their own family histories and their own nations and people and sort of realizing, oh, there's one common evil here, even amongst like all the other, you know, intercountry relations that they have mm-hmm. going on. That was just really how we focused on like, okay, like demilitarization. That's a huge thing because the U.S. has army bases on every fucking continent. Yeah. Like, I think there's 60 something army bases in South Korea and South Korea is smaller than Arizona. Why? What? <laughs> yeah. What? Okay. So, yes. Um, so just like seeing all of that happen with kids in the diaspora. Yes, we're artists, we're creators, we're students, but also like outside of that, what are we actually doing? Specifically diasporic Asian artists. I won't speak on other communities, but diasporic non-Black Asian artists are very caught up in like representation in their art, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I just want to know 
the conditions for why. Like, why do you want to be seen in a white supremacist work? Why do you want to be validated by these institutions? And like sitting with that and being like, okay, yeah. Like you said, like asking the questions, like why do I want to be recognized by the institutions? Is it material? Is it emotional? Is it brainwashing? And I think, I actually think kids are better at that. Like Mm. the four to five, I feel like they're always asking like, why? And I feel like as adults, we don't do enough of that unless we make it an intentional process. For me, my dad raised me to like literally always question. He's like, you have to question your teachers about everything you learn. That's awesome. Yeah. He didn't like it when I did it to him though. You know, (laughs) he's like, you're you're questioning me, your father. I was like, yeah. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Does it do what? I realized I didn't talk about them in sort of like my understanding my own culture because for them, they've been more of an anchor for me Mm. rather than like something that throws me in a different direction like they've been very grounding and affirming in like community and the the escaping you know the individualism that is art and as we're like raised to be and like reminding me like oh yeah this is like way bigger than you like all of this is way bigger than you and you need to relax (laughs) yeah yeah um but yes they're all great my pledge brother belongs to uh to hona odom the tribe and Mm -hmm. so i i really like that on the website as well, there you reference a few of the tribes. And then mm-hmm. again, the, just going through all your stuff on online, I've thought, oh my God, I need to talk to this person because it's great that that's acknowledged, right? I, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people just take for granted the land we're just on mm-hmm. um, and not really asking how it sort of came to be. How could people get involved with your organization or find out more? Yes. Um, Our website is a great resource. They can also DM us on Instagram. Our website also has a contact form and we will get back to you right now. Our team, our steering team is four people. Um, Like our network of who we work with is like larger than that. But the people who sort of run the run the day to day things is four people. But yes, if they would like more information, um, reaching out actually via our website, the contact form is the best way. Cool. 2020 was uh, pretty awesome. No, it was not. How how were you and how was like the organization and and then you as an artist and even of course you as a person, like how, how was it for you? And and it's because it's weird when I like do these episodes to not bring up uh, Mm. that past year. So yeah. How was your year, I guess? Mm. Yes. I think last year was definitely a refocusing and a reminder that community is the most important thing. In the beginning of the year, I was actually living in New York until the pandemic. Oh, okay. And I moved to New York because, again, it was one of those things where I was like, well, you know, might as well. And if I don't like it, I'll just move back. <laughs> um, because I had just finished a contract with um, the Phoenix Theater Company in December. And then so January, I moved. And at that time, I was kind of like, struggling with that because I knew I wanted to be involved in community work. And I knew that moving to New York would make me not a member of the community and it would take like, you know, Mm. a reconfiguration. Pandemic happened and I was like, well, like something very ancestral in me was like, I need to be with my family, (laughs) you know? So I came back here and, you know, it was just, I think the most involved in the community Desert Diwat has ever been. So we've had we had um, like a showcase in 2019 for Asian artists. And that was really, really cool. That was really, really cool. 
But in terms of community work, like mutual aid, we had not been involved in. But 2020 is when we started um, a study group specifically for like Black and non-Black Asians to get together and read um, Black radical theory and Black history, which was just for a space because I think you know, in wake of the uprising, a lot of people were like, well, what do I do now? And we're like, education, like that's kind of the first thing. So we set up an eight-week study program for that, uh, which was so hard. (laughs) It was very difficult just because we wanted, it was our first time doing it. So there were a lot of things we had to work out just in terms of logistics. And we had like hundreds of people sign up and we were like, what how do we how do we a team of four do this you know right after the study group ended i believe in early august because we knew we wanted to do eight weeks through the summer because then people's other like people who are still in school that would start and then we started getting involved in mutual aid and mutual aid fundraising so now we do weekly money pools um, so we had a fundraiser where people could like get stickers and like things like that. And that's still ongoing. And then we would take a hundred percent of that um, and redistribute it. So 60% goes to buying mutual aid supplies from mutual aid Phoenix in Arizona. And then 40% goes directly to um, a black Asian youth who is uh, struggling with insecure housing. Okay. So that's how we split it every week. And we've been doing that it's January now. And we started doing that August. So however many months we've been doing that every week. So 2020, like, I think the biggest lesson for me was like, yeah, none of this is about you. How Mm -hmm. are you using your skills not to further a career, which like will not exist at some point, Mm -hmm. but how are you using it to create like sustainable networks to ultimately better where you are locally? Because I think I was definitely like this, but like when you think of activism, which as a word, has become very watered down, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, language language is interesting. Seeing the co- co-option, co-option, yeah, co-option of language this past year has been very fascinating, like for defund and abolish and how those things no longer mean anything when they're like taken out of context. Mm-hmm. Um, but where was I? <laughs> oh, uh, August uh, mutual aid and then... Um... Oh no, you had a word. And then we went into the co-op thing. Oh, activism. Yes. (laughs) I think when people, thank you. (laughs) Um, I think when people think of activism, you know, they think of like what, like national scale, like what can change um, nationally. And they feel very powerless. They're like, I can't solve these things in a day. But like there are local orgs that are doing the work like no matter where you are, there are people who are doing the work who have been doing the work. I see a lot of people, specifically on the internet, but people who are like, why is no one talking about this? Why is no one doing X, Y, Z? And it's like, there are people who've been doing that for decades, you know? And just like being plugged into them being like, okay, yes, I may not be able to solve systemic racism on my own, but I can redistribute my money towards orgs that are making sure people without housing get fed and get shelter, you know? I don't know. I think it's a lot easier and less daunting than people think it is. I'm definitely in the daunting boat. <laughs> I, the, the whole year I was, I wanted to go protest. I wanted to do something, but with my, my partner and my, my, our son, mm-hmm. I didn't feel safe, especially with COVID, right? That mm-hmm. whole thing is still going mm-hmm. on. Yes. And then I thought, okay, well, 
And I tried to do that. I my whole scope was America. I need to save America. <laughs> That's not gonna happen. Um, so I thought, okay, local groups. So I've have a few that I've, I'm trying to figure out. And um, hearing you talk about it is is really an inspirational, right? It really is for me to hear you talk about it. And it it's not as daunting, right? After mm-hmm. listening to you talk about it, so it's it's nice. But I, I do remember feeling super overwhelmed and like. I need to fix the prison system. What about <laughs> abused kids? What about drugs? Like it just, no. So I need to uh, uh, calm it down for a second, lay off, lay off my coffee. Um, <laughs> so I have a few more random questions for the end. Do you have a song recommendation? It doesn't have to be a brand new song currently. It could just be a song you like. Mm, yes. Okay. So this is kind of like my angsty feel good song. Like I can, like, it just picks me up um, any day, but it's Cruel Summer by Taylor Swift. It's just, it's just a great pop bop. <laughs> what bores you? Oh my God. So much. I think, I think. If you say this podcast, <laughs> I'm going to cry right here. No, right no now. tears, please. <laughs> Not on Zoom. Um, what bores me? I think just things that don't, <laughs> this is obvious, things that don't interest me, but things that don't like stimulate me intellectually, you know, like just sort of, I think of like media, media that's just really doesn't ask any questions or doesn't make you think about anything. It's just sort of for like, I don't know, just things that don't make me ask questions. I'm yes. going to type dumb people. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not how often? Uh, this might be kind of hard to do now, but how often do you people watch? Oh, all the time. Not like okay. So we have a balcony on the apartment, and you can just see into. So there's like an assisted living facility right next to us, and so like all their windows are always open. You just see people, and I always look to make sure they're not watching me. Cause that's also one of my fears. I'm like, what if there's surveillance? Yeah, no, I used to do that all the time though. Like I would just go into like coffee shops and stuff and like see what other people are doing. Um, now it's definitely more difficult. Yeah. But you know, if there are people walking outside, I'll definitely watch them. <laughs> cool. What songs have you completely memorized? Oh my God. Everything from Les Mis, just cause I grew up with that. Most of the ABBA songs. Driver's License by Olivia Rodrigo. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I love that song so much. Yeah, just a lot. A lot of music from my childhood that my parents played. I was listening to that Driver's License song. And mm-hmm. then th- that's when I felt old. I was like, that was 70 years ago for me. So what, <laughs> what was something that has made you feel either old or made you feel really young? Oh, something that makes me feel old is just like, seeing young people who are like in high school or who like reach out to me in the community and they're like oh you know I'm applying to college stuff like that I'm like oh that's awesome I like just applied for college and then I think about how long it's been since I applied for college and I was like oh my god I'm so much older yeah yes and then I think make me feel younger a lot of my friends are like four or five years older than me and just like they'll talk about things they grew up with and I'm like I have no idea what (laughs) I don't know what dial-up internet is. Um, (laughs) My kids, you know, they always talk about they're five. I'm going to turn six. And then Mm. they go, Michael Lobo, how old are you? And I ask you, how old do you think I am? 
mm-hmm. and it's either like I'm seven years old or a uh, hundred. And so <laughs> I go, oh my God, they're like, yeah, you're a grandpa. I go, wait, hold on. That's not how grandfatherdom works. Okay. It's not. Okay. But yes. what movie title best describes your life? What movie title best describes my life? Oh no. My brain just was like, have you ever seen a movie? Um, <laughs> What's um, a movie? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm no, just thinking no, you're of good. really silly responses, but my brain just immediately was like the Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> because Perfect. I feel like I'm just constantly unmasking things, you know, like yeah. not like people necessarily. I'm not like, there aren't a bunch of sinister people in my life, but like, you know, you think one thing is one thing and then you like reveal it and it's like, oh, it's actually this other thing. That's I get, my response. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I don't get it. Um, <laughs> what is something you've had to unlearn? That's a lot. I don't know. Everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, I think I'm still unlearning a lot of things. I'm still unlearning misogyny. I'm still unlearning fancy blackness. I'm still unlearning, ooh, shame, just in general. Um, mm. How yes. do you unlearn that? Because I'm struggling. Oh, no. I, that's I... a, me and um, Danielle, my friend from Desert Diwata, we've actually been doing very intentional, like, shadow work journaling. So we've been getting, like, prompts about shame and guilt and, like, why you feel this way, like, what happened to you to feel this way, and sort of unpacking it. And I think unpacking it and learning to live with it is, like, the most you can do. I think this will change. I think at some point in my life, like when I'm older, because you know, like old people, sometimes they just don't care. Like they don't give a fuck about what we do. don't care anymore. <laughs> As an old person, we don't give a shit. Mm, um, yes. <laughs> and this is the last one. What mm. is a pet peeve of yours? Ooh, like smacking lips when you eat. Yeah. Horrible. I cannot stand. I used to like move away from my brother when he would do that. Cause I just can't handle it. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> No, yes. no worries. I totally get that. But that's it. Thank you so much. You survived. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yes. No, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I had oh, a good time. You don't have to lie. It's uh, <laughs> we'll No, I mean it. it. We'll I go mean, just oh. go into me crying. Um, oh, that might be cool. Like not get a cool. performance. Yes. There we that's, go. That's how we'll do it. Uh, but no, seriously, thank you. I, I truly appreciate it. And um, life is just insane so i appreciate the time you've you've been able to take with this yes Um, thank you like why do you want to be seen in a white supremacist work why do you want to be validated by these institutions Mm -hmm.